It's time for the only show where today's top mid-revenue cycle leaders share the personal stories, struggles, and successes that you won't hear on the big stage, but made them who they are today. Are you ready to go off the record? Here's your host, Brian Murphy. All right, fellow CDI and coding compadres, we're back with another episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Brian Murphy. So if you don't like the Cincinnati Bengals, you might want to stop listening now. <laughs> Today's guest is a raging pro football fan who thinks uh, Joe Burrow could be our next president. And who knows, maybe someday he will. <laughs> I love Joe Burrow, Robin. He was on my fantasy team last year. Uh, someone scooped him up on me this year, but I'll get him back in the future. Uh, but I want to welcome you to the show. We have with us Robin Jones. Uh, Robin is the Executive Director of Clinical Excellence for the West Florida Division of Advent Health. I've known Robin for, for a long time. Robin, uh, you were always a great contributor to Actus in my Actus days. I had you up on the big stage at the conference once doing a one-on-one. -on -one. This is a much bigger stage, of course, <laughs> the Off the Record podcast, but I'm thrilled to have you here. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here today. So um, very appreciative. And just so you know, Burrow is my quarterback on my fantasy team this year. So I got him this year. You got him. All I right. Did. That's awesome. He's having a pretty good year. He had a, a little bit of a shaky start, maybe the first game or two, but Bengals are coming around. I think they're a solid team that's got a chance to go a long way. We'll see. Absolutely. All right. You know, before we get into all of the your CDI background and 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 your career, Robin. I just did want to talk. You know, as we're filming, uh, filming or recording, I should say, this is a podcast. We're not uh, actually filming. You know, Florida was recently hit with Hurricane Ian. So, just wanted to ask you a couple questions about that. A, I hope you're okay. Um, I know you know you escaped any physical bodily injury, but property damage, and it was just crazy. The scenes of devastation. So. Um, what happened there with, with, with you? Yeah, so um, we got really, really lucky. And I think a lot of us here in the Tampa um, vicinity is really feeling um, a little bit of um, guilt because of that, right? So right. Um, early on, we were going to be the direct hit. And at the last minute, Ian had other plans and went about 110 miles south of us. So gotcha. Fort Myer, mm -hmm. you know, Sanibel, um, Punta Gorda are just devastated and it's it's just it's just unbelievable what a storm can do um, but for us we were you know we had some tree debris it took you know like six hours to clean up you know and these people don't have houses yeah. so it's um it's 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 just devastating but thank you for asking yeah no we have a we have a guy at, at Norwood who um we have, well, about 30% of our company is, is down in Florida and he lives in Orlando. So he escaped with very minimal damage, but he had an aunt who lives down in Fort Myers and a lot of damage. He's down there helping out with the cleanup right now, which is pretty admirable, but yeah, crazy. And, and I'm glad you got through that unscathed. So yeah. And you could yeah. join me on the podcast here. Absolutely. No <laughs> place I'd rather be. Yeah. So, you know, let's just start with a little bit about your current role, Robin. You know, what is it you do at Advent Health and maybe give us a day in the life of Robin Jones? 
<laughs> so the day in the life of Robin Jones is a bit complicated. So okay. <laughs> as the um, executive director of clinical excellence, I oversee two big programs here in the West Florida division. So one um, takes us back to us and our um, relationship with CDI, you know, in Actus community. Mm-hmm. And so I oversee CDI for our West Florida division. Um, there are 13 hospitals in our division and we are growing. Um, we are building a hospital currently. Um, so we um, oversee the documentation from the medical record. Um, nurses are in those roles. We are um, a hybrid program, so we are not fully remote, which makes us a little bit unique. Um, we have a lot of um, one-on-one conversations with our uh, physicians. We collaborate with all of the medical team, whether that's dietary, case management, risk, quality, We're a quality-focused program, which is a little bit different. Um, When I started in CDI in 2004, it was revenue generating, and now we have made that switch to quality, which which is what makes me happy. I want to take care of patients and make sure that their their care is documented. Um, My other side of my hat is um, clinical education. So I oversee all of clinical education for the West Florida Division. So um, everything from developing grad nurse residency programs, um, we are doing team nursing again with LPNs. So we're bringing LPNs in as part of our nursing teams. Um, I'm gonna start working on a respiratory therapy residency program. Um, I do some projects with lab um, in pharmacy and radiology. So anything clinical education, um, nursing, non-nursing, I'm involved in some some form or fashion of. Wow. I, so I didn't realize this. I was thinking um, clinical excellence, which by the way, I love was just a, a synonym for CDI, but that's uh, okay. You, you floored me on my own program. I was not prepared for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love so it. It's all encompassing if you think about it. So CDI from our, the um, kind of the vision that we have here is we work with risk and quality to make sure that LeapFrog and CMS Five Star, we've done amazing, amazing things with our score, um, our scores with that, with the public um, information. Um, But now I oversee all of education. So we um, certainly have an impact on all areas of of the hospital. So it's very exciting to be a part of both sides, uh, making sure that our patients are safe um, and making sure that our nursing care and non-nursing care is safe for our community. I love this because it really, people talk, you know, you, you, we know what the perception of CDI is and it, it's still out there that CDI is a money maker for the hospital. It's a purely revenue generating profession. And, you know, you, what, what I like about you, among other things, Robin, is that you, you've, you've assumed that title, but you've really brought it purely into the clinical context here and align those two very well. I was just interested in hearing more about, you've, you've given me so much here to work with, but what what are your metrics for success then? Because you've said you moved away in 04 from being a financial pro- focused and facing program to this clinical side. You mentioned LeapFrog, you mentioned some of the quality programs. Do you have like, a, if you're looking at your CDI dashboard, what is your metric for saying we're, we're doing well or we're yeah. improving? So we have so many things, right? So we look at our, obviously we have to have frontline CDSs to do our concurrent reviews. 
So we have the standard CDI traditional industries um, standard metrics, which are review rate, our clarification rate, and our physician response rate. Again, our CDSs are located not only in our facilities, but they actually have workstations out on the nursing units. So they are having those one, those real-time conversations with the physicians um, and dared, I call them mid-levels, but you know, MPs, PAs, um, so we can get the documentation that's accurate for our, for our patients. Yeah. Um, then we have second level reviewers or what I call quality liaisons, and they are all remote. Um, and they catch all of our um, mortality reviews. So we look at mortality and it's, and it's a, it's a um, trifecta approach that we take. So um, we put the chart on hold for 48 hours and it gives an opportunity for mm -hmm. CDI, which is our quality liaisons, quality and um, the coding team look at that chart together and make sure that all the documentation is accurate before that mortality gets out, gets out and gets coded and billed and whatnot. Wow. So we really look at ODE, right? So ODE is huge, um, which then impacts our leapfrog and our CMS five stars. You know, we've made, I hate to say it, it sounds kind of funny, but we've made leaps um, with our, with our um, scores. So when I got here, um, we were not A's and most of mm -hmm. our hospitals are now grade A hospitals. And I think that we've really, taken the approach that we've learned from what was not good with our documentation and we've improved processes in the hospital to make sure that we are not causing harm. We're not giving, you know, um, UTIs, we're not giving central line infections. So we're looking at CLAPSI and CAUTIs. Um, so we're able to look at our patients' charts, not from a financial perspective, because I think I've finally convinced everyone in the universe that will listen to me that if you do the documentation the right way on the concurrent side, it's a trickle down effect. So you don't have to worry about revenue and you don't have to worry about all of that because you're doing everything right as the, as the patient goes through their hospitalization. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our concurrent reviewers are looking at our charts every um, 24 to 48 hours. They're having collaborative relation, relationships and conversations with, the, with all of the ancillary teams in our facilities. And then, you know, from my clinical education perspective, we're taking, um, you know, nursing students who didn't get a lot of clinical time, right? Because now mm -hmm. universities don't have faculty, they can't offer the same clinical experience that, you know, when you've been a nurse for 25 years, you had great clinical experience before you came out of school. Um, so now we're gonna give those new nurses a safe environment to come in, give some experience and clinical immersions. We put them in in situations that they're going to be faced in the hospital in a safe and contained environment to learn. Um, and we give them that feedback in real time. So, um, you know, I feel like my job is so important because it's really about keeping everyone safe, right? The patient safe, which is our first priority but then giving our associates a safe place to come and be a part of a bigger team. I love that. I, how did you convince the power? I'm already hearing people asking questions in my ear. They're not really here. Maybe it's just my overactive imagination, but how, how, how did you get a bill hold in place for 48 hours to, to review that chart for mortality? Was that, that must've been taken some convincing because you're obviously holding up, you know, revenue. DNFB, right? Yep. So, um, you know, that was, I think it was just, I have an incredible division leadership team. So 
they trust my judgment. Um, I've always kind of delivered on what I said I was going to deliver on. And I think there's just that level of trust that, you know, bringing these three, three professions together to review the chart is the right thing to do for the patient. Right. And I think that is where healthcare across the, you know, across the country really needs to come to the realization that first and foremost, your patients have to be safe and yep. they have to um, get the quality care. And then everything else is just trickle down. Yeah, I love that. And then the other question I have, Robin, is of course, you, it sounds almost like a throwback, but you mentioned having actual CDI professionals on site uh, doing, doing the reviews, being actually getting out on the floor, doing education. Um, has, was that difficult in this day and age of work from home? I'm, as I'm speaking here, I've got uh, you know my, my little work from home man cave behind me and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I know that's a, that's a job satisfier, but how did this come about? Did, and is, has it been harder for you in, in this day and age um, in, in this environment of, I mean, you can do everything remotely or most right. things. Right. You can do most things, but remember the one thing that we all need is human contact, right? Mm -hmm. So we did go home the first six weeks of, of COVID. So 2020 in the spring, we went home for six weeks. And I think, you know, a lot of that was all, you know, 11th hour planning, you know, how do we get 60 people home safely, right? And then have them with all the equipment they need. Um, but we saw we could watch every week, we could watch our physician response rates go down. Now we can all, really? that could be because the doctors were, you know, overburned with patients and, and providing care. And sure. we were in a pandemic environment that we had never been in before, right? We knew it was coming, we just didn't know when. Um, so, you know, we can say that, we can also say it was the human contact. So physicians, you know, we're, we're text and we're, you know, and I'm not techie. Um, so, you know, we, we rely on so much um, impersonal conversations, right? Texting is easy. Email is easy. Mm -hmm. Everybody can be a key, keyboard warrior, as they call them. Um, yeah. But there's something about face-to-face -face conversations that just make things easier for everybody. And so have we um, had some staffing gaps because of our philosophy? Absolutely. You know, we're just like everybody else. You know, people want to work from home. And, you know, but I think the people who really take pride in what they do and really want to do what's best for the patients and the best for the organization, the best for their community, they do see the value in having those face-to-face -face conversations with the physicians. And I think at the end of the day, the physicians, it's one less text, it's mm -hmm. one less email, it's one right. less thing they have to do because they can have that conversation, get it taken care of right there in the medical record and call it a day. And the same is true with, you know, education, with clinical education. You know, mm -hmm. I, I've been, I um, go out and talk to nursing students. I'm in nursing schools probably two to three days a week talking to nursing students. And they tell me about how they did clinicals virtually. And I, you know, I joke, half joke, um, I've never had to change a patient's bed with a patient in it virtually. Like, I don't know how you do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that really kind of a challenge. my other role, you know, we have to give, we have to give people the personal contact again, like, how do you change a bed um, with a patient in it? You know, it's, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not easy. 
And how do you have those conversations? And I know as we look at this generation, because I have kids in this generation, um, this new generation, that everything is so techy and hands off. And I think we really have to get people back into having human contact again with each other. Um, it's mm -hmm. going to benefit all, it's going to benefit everyone physically, mentally, and spiritually. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I work for a totally remote company and the way we kind of do things is we, we try to meet up at conferences. We ha we're having a retreat coming up next month you know, you, you, you have to have some of that. Mm -hmm. Um, otherwise you go stir crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm currently without a car because my daughter uh, recently got her driver's license oh. and uh, is using my car quite a bit, which saves me all of the trips. She's a, she does cross country right now and track in the, in the winter and spring. Yeah. And I don't have to cart her around, but I am literally stuck in the house. I can't go anywhere unless it's on foot. And you, you start feeling that, uh, that itch to, when you lose human contact. And even though here we are on, on, on Zoom, it's still, there's nothing like being in person. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you still have that component, Robin. I do think it's important. I do wonder as well, you know, we, we know, I mean, this is a whole separate, could be an hour topic in and of itself, you know, provider burnout, physician burnout. I, I wonder if there isn't some relation, you know, when the pandemic hit and, folks were sent home and maybe even CDI professionals who they used to having conversations with, you know, uh, talking to them about their family life, their golf game, um, their, their, you know, their hobbies, you know, maybe I, we just, well, I had someone earlier on the show who knew that they're, you know, they're some of their top doctors and all that they did. You know, one of them was a classic car collector or just having those conversations that weren't about work. Yep. Um, I have to think, let some of that pressure off, you know, that steam valve. And um, it sounds like you, you've discovered, rediscovered that value in having the face-to-face -face again, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we had, um, you know, that initial phase of COVID, we actually were, and I, you know, knock on wood, I hate to say it out loud, but we were not overwhelmingly impacted with a lot of COVID patients. We had them, right? I'm not yep. going to deny we had them, um, but we weren't overwhelmed, you know, like New York and all the other places. Um, and that was the number one thing. I mean, we we would call our associates every every couple of days and make sure they were okay, um, because mm. there's something to be said from going from an environment where you can talk about your golf game or football or what you did over the weekend, and all of a sudden you are socially isolated, your kids are home, your spouses are home, you're, you're forced to figure out how to work and do this whole work-life balance thing, but you're all in each other's space all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so we would call and, you know, there was often a lot of tears and tears were a lot of, for a lot of reasons. Right. It was fear of the pandemic and what this virus was going to do. Yep. It was, but it was sadness. It was sadness that I don't get to see my friends. I don't get to see my coworkers. I don't, I don't get to go to the grocery store. I mean, I don't know too many people that enjoy going to the grocery store, but we did then because mm -hmm. we couldn't do it. So right. you um, realize what, what it is you missed. You absolutely. Know? Yeah. So, you know, we brought people back um, in a safe environment. Um, we did not put people, we did not put our CDI out on the, on the COVID units. They did work from the office on, you know, if they were assigned to that unit, cause we're unit based, our CDSs are unit based. Um, so, you know, they would, but they at least got to have that T 
team camaraderie in in the office, you know, that space to talk about all the things. And so they were very grateful. Um, the second variant that came around, um, we were more impacted, um, but we kept stayed strong. You know, we kept everybody in house. We kept the CDS team. Um, and that's when we probably stepped up our hybrid game. Um, so we allowed everyone to work remotely on Mondays and then they rotate um, based on the, on the team dynamics um they're either working remotely on Wednesday or Thursday so team we have hurricanes uh, we have our hurricane team so we have CDI teams um A and B so on uh Wednesdays team A works remotely and then on Thursdays team B re works remotely so um that's when we went nice. from one day to two days and then um yeah it seemed to be a big um satisfier nice I'm glad you break it up like that and have you know the rotation in there, I imagine that is a big satisfier and you get people still get their work at home days uh, and can come in and, and get that actual human interaction. So pretty cool. Yeah. Well, Robin, this is awesome, you know, and, um, and I am also just so glad to hear that you're developing the next generation of nurses. That's another profession that I'm worried about a little bit because of, yeah. you know, the rate of attrition younger nurses dropping out of the field because it's, it's, you know, you hear about physical assaults and it's a, it's a tough profession uh, more than ever these days. And I'm really glad to hear that your part of your big part of your job is developing that next gen of nurse. But I, I, I wanted to dial it back here a bit and to go back into your childhood. So <laughs> this, this is, this is uh, the time for the origin story here, but how the heck did you get into all of this to begin with? You know, Pre pre healthcare now the young Robin, what did you want to be when you grow up? Did you always were you always thinking nursing or how, how, how did this call come around? Yeah, so I I have an interesting like story. So a lot of people don't know because I don't really share too much. But um, I was an extreme introvert, if you can believe that. So yeah. I was an extreme well, introvert. So introverts unite because I'm I'm one of them too. And here I am doing a podcast. I I don't know how this works. <laughs> crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So um. So growing up, I was the youngest only girl. Um, I have four older brothers. So, um, wow. you know, I had to like sports or you just got beat up. They didn't care that you were a girl. Yeah, right. um, so, but all kidding aside, um, my maternal grandparents were a huge impact on my life. And so um, in March of 1969, my grandfather got cancer of the larynx and I came along in August of 69. And being the only girl, on the side of the family, he made a, made a promise that he would learn how to talk to me. And so we learned to talk together. And I didn't know that, of course, because I was too little. But as I grew up and um, they were such a huge part of my life, I basically lived with them about five days of the week. My parents were career people. You know, I, everything, I don't want to get too gross to, to everybody out there, um, but when you have cancer of the larynx, they obviously take your voice box out um, mm -hmm. the larynx. And he had a stoma in his throat. So he was not, he was not trached. He was not vent dependent, but he had a stoma. Okay. So um, as someone who just is intrigued by medicine and is kind of a medical nerd, um, I love that everything that happens here in your nose and your mouth happens mm -hmm. here in your throat. And so I was just intrigued by how all of this happens, you know, how, how you can live with this hole in your throat. 
Um, so, so you're you're again about four, five, six years old at the time here. Oh or? yeah, I was every bit of five. So they yep. owned a dry cleaner plant, and they worked hard their whole life. And so every morning, um, you know, I would I would be the one who took care of the hole in his throat, and I, I you know, there was nothing to take care of, but it was my thing. Sure. Um, and then off to, you know, off to the dry cleaners, we would go and um, I would talk to all the people that would come in and pick up their clothes and then went to school, was always kind of the quiet kid in the back of the room, wasn't overly ambitious about school, um, got into cheerleading, which was weird because I was an introvert. So, but I could scream and do my cheers and do flips and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to be a nurse. Um, just never, my, my family's focus was never college. Um, and I didn't really know what college would be like for me, but mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to be a nurse. Okay. So got married young, had our children young and, um, decided when my son Tyler, um, was a year old that I would go back to nursing school. So went, walked around the neighborhood and advertised babysitting. And I started babysitting all of the neighborhood kids, went to school, babysat during the day, all the neighborhood kids. So my kids would have people to play with um, and um, went to school at night, got all my prereqs done, wow. started full-time nursing school when my son was in his second year of preschool. And I graduated on my daughter's seventh birthday. Wow. So I had a family, I had kids. Um, yeah. How old were you at the time, Robin? Oh, let's see. I was born in 1969. I graduated from nursing school in 99. So, okay. So about, yeah, relatively late ish start yeah. in nursing, but all along here you are. I mean, you're, you're taking care of your grandfather, uh, developing an interest in, you know, that medical piece there. And then I guess babysitting, you know, you're, you're, you're caring there. So it's, it's, it's there all along and you, and you had that you had that uh, itch from an early age. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. So yep. graduated um, from Christ Hospital School of Nursing okay. and started um, working on the um, post-op med surg unit for a year at, um, to fulfill a scholarship. I actually got a scholarship to go to nursing school. And ironically enough, my daughter graduated from the Christ Hospital School of Nursing. So we both are, we both are nurses. Oh my um, gosh, that's awesome. Yeah. So lots of stuff. And then I went Are you, you, you going to steer her into CDI someday or, or no. is she still okay? <laughs> no, I don't have any luck of that. So she's, she's a great nurse. She yeah. um, has just done amazing things with her career. So I would never want to take her away from bedside. We need, um, we need bedside nurses right now anyway. So yeah, maybe absolutely. someday. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, after a year in post-op adult world, I um, always loved the NICU. So went to NICU at yeah. Hospital in Cincinnati. And I wanted to ask you about that. That has to be both rewarding and terrifying at the same time. Um, I, I can't imagine Absolutely. that population. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, you know, it was. It was hands down the best job I ever had to date. I love taking care of the babies. I love taking care of the page, the parents. Um, but what I didn't love and what I couldn't deal with was the emotional side because you take mm. that, take it home, right? Yeah. Um, you can only hold so many um, babies who are actively dying on Christmas Eve. And that's literally what <sighs> put me out of the NICU. So 
had a patient um, and it was Christmas Eve and there was nothing more we could do. And so watching his parents say goodbye to him on Christmas Eve just seemed like it was not something I could do anymore. So started looking for um, an ancillary position, wanted to come back to the NICU, thought I'd just need a little emotional break and do something different. Um, tripped and fell right into CDI world. They were starting programs back in 2004. That's back when administrators were buying into the programs thinking they were um, gonna get a lot of reimbursement from them and they did, right? Is this still at uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital? You was so I was at Cincinnati Children's in the NICU, but yeah. then when I became and when I got interested in CDI, I was actually in a suburban hospital outside of Cincinnati at Mercy Health. So I gotcha. was their Fairfield um, facility. So I started the program there in um, in that hospital, and um, can't say that I was I impressed with it at first, probably because I didn't understand it. You know, I was always right. taking care of patients and doing that. I didn't, I didn't realize that there was this whole other world happening. So this um, is 2004 or thereabouts. So this is, this is 2004. This is June of 2004. So back then. So pre-ACTUS, pre-MSDRG. I mean, this is like early, early days, CDI. Early days, early yep. days. So sat with the coding people for a week in this class and I was I didn't even know who coders were I didn't know that was a thing so I learned uh, you know everything I didn't know about coding that week and really honestly I say this all the time I only plan to stay in CDI for a year I thought you know I'm going to go back to the NICU and somehow everything just kind of changed and I fell in love with CDI and I think it gave me the platform to still be that medical nerd. Um, I love disease processes. I love treatment modalities. Um, I love to look at, you know, what population, um, their risk factors. So it just, it just clicked. Something in my brain just clicked with it and I fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. And so really- One year, one year became 18 and counting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, um, and I think that is where, you know, I got, bit by the leadership bug, uh, so to speak. And I fell into that too. Um, so in 2008, I became the team lead of our little team at Mercy Fairfield. And then one day in 2011, my, um, my boss came in and she said, hey, I recommended you for a new job and you're gonna be great. They're gonna call you, it'll be great. And I just remember looking at her saying, but I don't want a new job, I, I like this job. And she said, no, it'll be the regional manager. You'll oversee the Cincinnati facilities. We've got a great thing going here. Now you can, you can make it happen, you know, for five facilities. And I, I just, and she said, buy a suit. You'll be great. Do you, and, do you remember her name, Robin? Yeah, Teresa Reilly. So she was the case manager, case manager director at Mercy Fairfield. And, you know, she's the one who kind of shoved me over the, over the cliff and, um, <sighs> went in and interviewed with the VP of Revenue Cycle, who then was Michelle Napier, and um, walked in nervous. I had a suit on, you know, um, I don't know what to say. Um, and Do I you have any out. management experience at this point? No, no none. 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 Wow. Never Holy cow. with management. But you, but you have the power suit on, so you, you're, you know, you're halfway there. <laughs> suit and heels, right? So um, VP revenue cycle, um, you know, Michelle was great, hour and a half long interview. She asked me, um, you know, what I thought I could do. And I said, well, I know is what I know. And I'm happy to share that information with other people. 
And at the end of that interview, we made a deal. She said, you teach me everything about CDI and I'll teach you everything about revenue cycle. And we spent um, about five years together and wow. um, she taught me everything that I know about revenue cycle. And I taught her everything that she knows about CDI. And, you know, we, we went our separate ways. She's um, at another hospital system here in Florida and I'm here. We still keep in contact. Um, you know, she's, she's really was the instrumental person who put me into the love of leadership and, and how to, oversee programs but the most important thing that she taught me was that um, you have to believe in yourself and mm -hmm. she believed in me when I didn't believe in myself and she mm -hmm. kept saying you know you can do this you you can do you can do more than what you think you can and she just kept putting me in situations that were uncomfortable right because that's what growth is growth is uncomfortable yeah um and so you have two choices you can either stay be in the be in the quiet kid in the back of the room or you can be the person in front of the room doing the presentation. So um, she really opened up my eyes to a completely different world. And so I have always told her I'm very, very grateful to her for, um, because I don't know that I'd be sitting here if it wasn't for her encouragement. Yeah, you know, I, I, this has been a common refrain in a, in a still a very young podcast. Um, I think every guest I've had has had someone like this at some point in their career who has seen more in them than they have seen in themselves and they've put they've made that recommendation or maybe it's a firmer push to just to say hey i've got this job for you you're gonna love it it's almost framed as not even an option it's like you're ready for this absolutely um, that's amazing i mean did, did you have, have you spoken with her since you spent a lot of time with her um about what she saw in you or, or what it was that why she came to you that that at, at that point in your career and said, "Hey, you're ready, Robin." <laughs> she, um, you know, I, you know, Michelle was from New York, right? So she had a big personality, mm -hmm. um, and so I was the quiet one. She was the extrovert, and so I think she just gave me the pushes and all the right places to really build, start building my confidence. Um, I can remember the first time. Um, she wanted me to present to division leadership and um, I'm, I'm, like, I'm not qualified to do this. Um, what makes you think I can do this? And she said, I know you can do it because you're the subject matter expert. You can talk about CDI. I mm. can't talk about CDI. So you have to, right? I talk about revenue cycle. You talk about CDI and it is true, right? Even when I um, presented on the big stage for Actus, I think I've presented two or three times in the breakout sessions. And then you mm. and I had our, our uh, little fun up on the stage with all the questions. And that was a lot of fun too. Um, and I, um, you know, I don't regret that push because um, it really gets you out there and people get to see all the great things that you do and you, and you, and it's true, you are the subject matter expert. So um, mm -hmm. once you get, once you get up there and you look out into the crowd, it's not about, um, teaching people that you don't know anything about. It just tends to flow out of your mouth. So it's right. kind of like this. Yeah. You just, you just realize that you've got a lot to share. And Absolutely. I think even us introverts um, realize that at some point that, yeah, we might not be the loudest person in the room. We might be the person at the party who's sort of hanging out in the back and taking things in, but we're, we're taking things in, we're absorbing it 
and we're we're learning a lot. <laughs> Whereas, not to dump on the extroverts, but I'll do that here for a minute. It, <laughs> hey, it's my it's my podcast. I can do absolutely whatever. You can do whatever you want. So, sometimes they're they're talking a big game, but they're actually maybe they're covering something else up, or maybe they just like to talk and they don't have the experience that that you've accumulated over the years. And um, it's just it's so awesome to see Robin that you came where you came from, given that opportunity and, and look, look what's become of you. It's you've, you've had a fantastic career and now, and now here you are at Advent health. Um, there I am. Yeah. Just maybe just a little bit about, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dying to know how, how you got to Advent health. You know, this was, there are many things I want to learn, but the, the big one is this is just a huge move from Ohio to Florida. You're moving, you know, halfway across the country. You've got a, we haven't even talked about this, but you have a couple of children, you know, in, in the mix here now. And, um, you know, maybe talk a little bit about just this move and what it's, what it's been like uh, assuming this new role at Advent. Yeah. So Advent, um, so a recruiter reached out to me mm -hmm. and said, you know, Advent Health has an opportunity um, in Tampa, Florida. And ironically enough, my family, um, we always vacationed every August in Siesta Key. So um, okay. I called my husband and I said, hey, an opportunity in Tampa, but isn't this close to Siesta Key? And he's like, yeah, like an hour and 15 minutes. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of conversation about this huge move, right? Um, 48 years at that point, 48 years, I had yeah. lived in within a 30 mile radius of the same place, had never lived on my own, wow. um, went straight from my parents' house to an apartment with my husband and then a condo and then a house. Um, our kids were graduated from high school. So Tyler, um, Megan graduated in 2010, Megan or Tyler graduated in 2012. Um, you know, they were becoming adults and we were becoming empty nesters. Mm -hmm. And um, so a lot of things all came together at the same time. Megan is a nurse as well. She works at Children's Hospital, but she was going to um, go out and start travel nursing. So we were at this place in our life where um, we have this opportunity to go to Tampa, Florida. Um, they came looking for me and uh, to revitalize their CDI program and make it divisional. Okay. Um, you're an hour and 15 go. minutes from your favorite vacation spot. So, you know, that's just a little side bonus there. <laughs> you know what, what else do you want? And then um, we knew our daughter was going to travel nurse and, you know, we didn't know where that was going to take her. We know her first assignment was in Phoenix um, and who knows, she may stay in Phoenix. Um, yeah. <clears> and so our son, when we, when we sat the family down and said, you know, this is the opportunity, um, you know, what do we want to do? And our son was, I'm, I'm coming to Florida. So we moved down. I moved down by myself. So my husband and my daughter dropped me off. And um, November 13th of two, 2017 was my first day with Advent Health. Wow. They left that evening. And suddenly at 48 years old, I am by myself. What was time. that like? You're like, what am I going to do? for It dinner? was the most terrifying thing. <laughs> <clears throat> but looking back on it now, I learned so much about myself, right? Because us introverts who don't have a lot of self-confidence, you know, we always are kind of hiding behind the strong person. And my husband's always been the strong person. He's an extrovert too. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was time for, it was time for me to be a big girl. 
and do this. Um, I had committed to it and I, I was here. So did you um, purchase, a, did you purchase a home? Were you moving to an apartment? Okay. So we had come oh, down right. in October and okay. um, I did all my pre-employment stuff with Advent. And then we worked with a realtor, found a house. And so suddenly I am in, um, I'm in a house with um, a bed, a dresser and a nightstand and a blow up mattress as my couch with a 24 inch TV and no cable, <laughs> no cable and Wi-Fi. <laughs> Because um, we you were might as well living in a cave with like with like a, a campfire. I mean, right. <laughs> and I had some pots and pans. I had some I had some plates because everything was going to be coming from Cincinnati. So um, went back to Cincinnati, obviously, for the holiday for Thanksgiving. Um, and that was incredibly hard to come back. Um, right. And then um, my daughter graduated with her advanced degree in December. So I went back for her graduation. And then um, ultimately went back for Christmas and then my husband came back with me. Um, so we moved down here, um, didn't know a soul. And um, we became empty nesters at the same time. And we had to rediscover what life was all about as a couple. And as you know, he was looking for a job when he first came down and he works for Advent Health as well. So he's the lead electrician at one of our hospitals. So, oh, wow. yeah, so we both work for the same company, which is weird, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so we, you know, have since really acclimated to Florida um, living, you know, it's warm here all the time. It's no snow, all of that. Yep. It's all good news. We live an hour and 15 minutes away from one of our favorite places. Um, we've bought a boat, so we go. There's also, yeah, this there's, there's something called an ocean nearby, which yeah, you don't really so see too much of in Ohio. <laughs> go to the beach and then um a year after we moved down here then our son moved down and right. with his now wife so we've since had um him get married and we're expecting our first grandbaby who will be here in december so we're really excited congratulations for her so we're very excited to take another chapter so right life oh, is yeah. about chapters and so um we moved down here at a new chapter of our life and now we're getting ready to have another new chapter so yeah. Um, lots of great things. Our daughter still lives up in Cincinnati, miss her tremendously. Um, but, you know, kids grow up and they have their own life. And that's kind of what we raised them to do, right? Yeah. To be independent. So as a, as a soon to be empty nester, Robin, because so I have uh, one daughter who's a junior in college and I have a, another daughter who was a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. So this year, next time she'll be living somewhere, replying to five, six different schools, and they're all going to be, you know, her living on, on campus, which, you know, I think is the way it should be if you can afford it. And she wants to do that. But with less than a year, I'm going to be an empty nester. And my wife can't even talk about it without breaking down into tears. So do you, do you have any advice for uh, empty nesters, future empty nesters? What did you learn? You, you, you talked a little bit about having to rediscover yourself, you know, in that process of moving to an empty home yeah. and being Robin Jones without a, a protector, but also, you know, your, your children moving, moving on, moving up, which is great to see, but simultaneously heartbreaking. So any advice there? Yeah. So you have to figure out, you have to be confident in who you are. Right. And that's us introverts. We're never, we don't have, we don't exude a lot of self-confidence. Mm -hmm. um, but I had to figure out who I was as a person because you know, we have titles all of our life. We're, we're given a title, right? We're either a spouse or we're a parent or we're a 
an associate where, you know, so we have all of these titles. And I think empty nesting is the first time that you actually have to sit down and you have to figure out who you are as a person. Mm. Because, you know, we raised our kids, we, we had our kids young, um, but Roger and I have always been a team. And so, and that kind of takes me to my love of football, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're a team, you can, you can tackle anything, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but I had to figure out first who I was. And so first and foremost, my, my family will always come first. I will never, ever put a career before my, before my family. But I have to keep that in perspective because my, my kids don't need me as much as they did before. And that's hard, right? Because we want to mm-hmm. be needed. Everybody wants to be needed. Um, but now I have this really great relationship that's changed with my kids. So they don't need me. They want me in their life. And now we're friends, right? So we, we go out with our, we go go out with our kids and we see them in a different environment, right? So, um, we get to enjoy a lot of things with our kids that we couldn't have done before. And that a lot of that is Florida, but you know, when our daughter comes down to visit, we go out on the boat, we go to the beach. So we get to do all of those kind of activities together, right? But we still do the same things like put puzzles together and play games and watch, you know, sporting events and all of the things that we do. It's just different. And then you have to do the same thing with your marriage because, you know, you were PTA and you were running sports, um, people to sports and all the different activities that your kids did. And now all of a sudden you're kind of sitting there across from each other at the table, like, well, who are we? Cause we got lost, mm-hmm. right. Cause we've had all these other things to do. And so, you know, date nights are important, like going out mm-hmm. on a date, even though you see each other all the time, going out on a date and making sure that you go out to dinner or go to a movie or do all the things that you did before you had the kids. Yeah. So for us, I mean, that's, we've been married for 32 years. So yeah. had Megan, Megan is 30 and Tyler's 28. So yeah. what did we do back then that we can do now? So, and I think Florida obviously gives us some advantages of more things that we can do outdoors. And so with, that's something we really enjoy doing together. Yeah. And is, is your husband a football fan as well? So he's a Saturday fan. So he's a college fan. College fan. Okay. Yep. And I'm the NFL person. So he yells and coaches on Saturdays for the UC <laughs> Bearcats. And I yell and coach on Sundays for the Bengals. So. Oh, cool. So the weekends are all football in the, in the Jones Absolutely. household. That is awesome. You know, I, I wanted to, I, I do want to get into some football here. Uh, the show is just yeah. not about coding and CDI. We, we also talk football. Um, for those that don't know, I, I used to play football back in the day, high school, uh, a little bit in college before I decided it was not going to be for me anymore. And I had other, other ideas, but um, I love the game. I know you do, Robin. I, we, we already chatted. You're a big Bengals fan. I'm actually, a, uh, believe it or not, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, even though I grew up in New England. And I like the Patriots. Um, I, I'm old enough when to, to remember when the Patriots were terrible. They they were awful in the in the 80s. You know, they had that one trip to the Super Bowl and got crushed by the Bears. Um, but they were lousy into the 80s and early 90s before Bill Bella, uh, Bill Parcells came in and then Bill Belichick. So at the time, though, the Bills were up and coming and they had the no huddle offense and Jim Kelly and Bruce Smith and all those players. I loved it. I loved the game. I took a lot from the game. Um, I know you have as well. And frankly, it's not just, I mean, it is rah-rah for, for the, for the, the Bengals, but you've actually, you know, chatting before the show, you 
you, you have some lessons you've taken from that sport and applied it to your career and what you do in, in your job. Could you, you talk a little bit about that? What, what, what football has meant and how you've been able to, to uh, encourage your own team with it in your own career? Yeah. So I love football. I love the sport of football, but most of all, I love the team camaraderie that goes with football. Mm-hmm. So um, leadership lessons. So I'm, I'm often asked to speak about football and leadership. And so, you know, being the coach is that's a big responsibility, right? So, you know, the way I look at my teams, because I have two distinct teams, you know, you need your individuals on your team. Yep. Um, and your individuals are at various levels, right? You have some that are super engaged that want to do everything and they want to be successful. And then you have your people that are happy to come in, do their job and leave and go home, right? You have all of that on a football <laughs> team, right? Yeah. You've got, you know, you've always got the star, you know, you've got the Tom Brady's and um, Josh Allen and yep. Burrow. Um, everybody knows them, right? Yeah, all the good, um, the good looks. They're they're the leader. They're in the huddle. They're calling the plays. You know, absolutely. Yeah, um, and but they're your subject matter experts, right? So yep. you know, Tom Brady knows how to be a quarterback. I mean, he knows all the things about football because he has studied it so intensely. If like you ever hear like some of his podcast on you know his philosophies, it's it's amazing. So, and you always know the wide receivers, right? Because they're the the fast guys on the team. Um, but you don't really hear too much about the linemen, and they're no. the ones who protect us, right? So no. you've got to have all of your individuals that bring um, whatever they bring to your team. And then you've got to be, as the coach or the leader, the person who sees and recognizes the, the great things that they can do, but you also want to um, get their potential out there and um, yep. kind of be the person to sh- shove them off the cliff and make them, you know, have them grow and be uncomfortable because that's mm-hmm. what we do. Um, and so I don't think that there's any one position on a football team that's more important than the other. Um, Mm -hmm. everybody has to bring their individual, um, their perseverance and resilience and all of the things that they have to bring and they have to show up every day. You have to show up every day and you have to be committed to be the best, to be the best for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you've got to be the best for your team. And so it was interesting because this week, um, you know, as I was watching the games, um, you know, we don't hear too much about the kickers except for McPherson because, you know, he has a great leg. Yeah. Um, but this, you only hear about them when they miss usually, you know, absolutely. Like they, they, they kick they it through, a, they're doing their job. Yeah. Right. And I mean, case in point, the second game of the season, our long snapper went out, right. Got hurt in the first quarter. We didn't have a long snapper. McPherson, you know, couldn't cook it, couldn't kick the field goal. Right. Cause the long snapper issues. Um, so now his stats have gone down. But this week, it was interesting because nine games this weekend were decided by field goals in the last mm. second of the games. So never count out your kicker, right? Because you're right. going to need your kicker. Um, and then, you know, Patrick Mahomes comes into Ray J on Sunday night, and here is the GOAT, right? And he was a different Patrick Mahomes than we saw in the, in the Super Bowl. And, you know, some people can say, oh, well, you know, he – didn't want to be, you know, shown up by Tom Brady again or whatever, you know, he didn't have a hurt toe like he did in the Super Bowl. He came in with a different attitude. You could just see it in his eyes. You could see the passion for the game. Um, and my philosophy is sometimes you got to, to be the best, you got to beat the best. Right. Yep. And so 
you know, it's, it was such a personal thing for Patrick, Patrick Mahomes Sunday night. Um, he went in with a different attitude and I can do this instead of, oh my gosh, it's Tom Brady. I can't mm -hmm. do this. So every individual has to recognize that they bring something valuable to the team. And as the leader or the coach, you have to be able to see their value and their potential. And some people don't want to see their potential or don't know their potential. Case in point, I didn't, I never dreamed that yeah. I would sit in the seat if you would have told me this 30 years ago. Absolutely. You know, I, I, it, that's a great analogy. I love that you've applied football like this. Um, I think the game teaches a lot, you know, and if, if that, if that right guard, you know, that, that guy who's just plunked down in the middle of the line that no one watches or cares about because they are too focused on Brady's good looks or whatever, um, <laughs> misses his block that yeah. undoes the whole play, you know, that, 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 that undoes it all. And likewise, you know, that, that coding professional that maybe is not coding the hard work the CDI has done or, or vice versa, you know, that's, that's, that's a big hole in the team that is going to be felt and everyone has that role to play. Absolutely. And just, you know, that's applicable over on my education side. You know, we have grad nurses coming out of nursing school who've not had the fundamentals clinically. And so we have to give them a safe environment to learn and see what the potential is because people bring a lot to the table. And as a leader, you have to recognize what every individual brings to your team. Yep, you do. Correct. <laughs> you know, we, we've, we've covered a lot here on, on the show, Robin. This has been awesome. Um, just maybe a couple quick things to wrap up, trying to be mindful of your time here and, and, and of that and of my audience. Any, um, God, any lessons or takeaways, bit of advice, hard lesson, maybe you've learned from a mistake, something you want to share with our audience today, maybe about I don't know anything that going into CDR, maybe the transition to leadership. What have you learned that, you know, some um, that you want to convey to our listeners from, from this amazing, interesting journey of care and God, I'm, I'm still thinking about your experiences in, in the NICU and um, you've, you've just brought all of this and the, the, the culmination is an, an incredible career, but yeah. uh, try, try to boil it down. I'll, I'll give you the impossible task of, Give me, give me a couple of pithy takeaways or something you've learned here over your career you want to share. <laughs> yeah. So probably the one thing that comes like to mind, there's so many things that come to mind, but right. I guess the first thing is believe in yourself, believe in, hmm. you know, believe nobody can ever take that away from you. So number one, number two, I am not a patient person and patience is something I have to think about and I have to work hard on every day. Um, but be patient, be patient with yourself, like give yourself time to breathe and not be reactionary, right? Be proactive. Think about things that like, I love strategy. That's one of my main, that's my love is strategy. Um, back to football, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to know how to formulate the plays. You have to be able to formulate your business plans. So give yourself some grace, give yourself some patience and, and have patience and grace with other people because um, it will serve you well. The third thing, which was probably the biggest thing um, when I was becoming a leader is know your audience. Mm. Everybody receives you the same way. So I can be, um, I can be football here in the office. Um, but when I go over to the division, you know, leadership team, football's okay, right? It's the thing that brings us all together, but that's business. 
And so like today, I'm gonna present budget um, at two o'clock. And so I'll have my game face on, right? It won't be talk about football and all this other things and it'll be business. Mm-hmm. And that's where I can shine and be um, part of, you know, the strategic plan for the next year and a good resource and a good steward of our resources. So, um, you know, I can, I can, um, I don't want to say play because that sounds bad, but you, you really have to be able to address all of your different audiences. And for a leader, you have a lot of audiences. You have your, you have your frontline teams, you have your management teams, you have your ancillary teams. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you really have to know your audience and how yeah. to do them. So those you are have the so you have your needy podcast hosts that that you know demand your time as well, yep. <laughs> but you may able to share so much of yourself. And I, I I love those three. So believe in yourself, be patient mm-hmm. with yourself, especially, and know your audience. I think those are three great rules of thumb to live by. I love it. Last thing I want to end on, Robin, because this is off the record, and I'm I'm leaning hard into record having more than one meeting. You know, we got the medical record, the electronic health record. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, record is also something that can actually play music for those of us that grew up in the 60s and 70s, <laughs> early 80s, uh, listening to music. Do, do, you, do you have a top hit, top rock and roll hit from your youth that you want to share with our audience today? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I love the 80s. 80s yes. the first time best best era of music ever i'll challenge anybody on that my husband and i can do trivia for 80s we love the 80s right i'm with you and um and you know, six so you're born in 69 so you're coming right into the age i mean they they always say like age 12 is the golden age like anything you've listened to at that age uh, or watched um it becomes so, part of your soul <laughs> yeah so i i love the 80s bands like um journey Love oh God, I love Journey. Steve Perry's yeah. voice, the guy Absolutely. can sing like an angel. It's amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Um, who doesn't who doesn't love Journey? Um, but I also love Duran Duran and um, um, Flock of Seagulls. Yeah. Like they oh, were God, yeah. one hit wonders at some point. Um, but I was a huge Prince fan. And okay. So I loved Prince. And phenomenal guitarist, phenomenal performer. Yeah. Absolutely. And the one thing that I don't know that a lot of people know about Prince, but he never had any formal training in, in instruments. So he wow. was taught and it was by sound. Um, and so um, I used to play the piano when I was a teenager and um, wasn't that great. But um, I always wanted to sit down and, and play the piano with Prince because he was amazing that he could self-teach himself to play he played every instrument in his band um, and he would never received any formal training to do it he was too poor um so he he was his own he was his own person right and mm-hmm. how, how spectacular he was and oh my we, gosh you know his music was controversial we can all agree to that um but a I mass massive talent yeah absolutely and um so i would say if I had to be narrowed down, you know, I would say my favorite artist was Prince and my favorite band was Journey, but I don't think there's any 80s music that I would turn off. Okay. <laughs> any Prince song, the Little Red Corvette, maybe, or I don't know, um, When I Doves like, Cry? When Doves Cry. Yep, that's my favorite. Um, I loved Purple Rain. I thought it was a big comeback for him. I think he was going through a really hard time. Um, and I think it was this comeback. 
And I think that's who re-identified Prince. So had an opportunity to go to Minneapolis um, a couple of years ago. We toured, you know, his house, the sound, um, sound center. Oh, wow. um, it was really a unique ex experience. Um, in a Is this house place. now like a museum? Or Yes, yes. I had no idea. So it's yeah. sort of got that quasi Graceland, like you can go on a mm -hmm. tour. That yeah. is pretty cool. That, it's that's very news cool. to me. So I didn't um I didn't get to play the piano with him, but I got to see the piano that I would have hoped that we would have sat down and played, and he would have told me all the secrets of how to be a fabulous piano player. So super cool. Well, if I was a legitimate podcast host, I'd lead us out right now with some strains of Purple Rain or I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little red Corvette guy. I think there's a lot going on go. in that song, a lot of metaphor in that song Absol as well. Absolutely. <laughs> a, metaphor in a lot of his music. So, yes. Well, I love it, Robin. This has been phenomenal. Uh, enjoyed this interview so much. And I want to thank you again for coming on and, and sharing you. You know, you've conveyed some amazing lessons and uh, again, a career that we should all look up to and aspire to. And there's a lot more to come. So Absolutely. I wish you the best in the years ahead. And that is going to do it, folks, for today's, uh, this week's episode of Off the Record. I always say, please let us know what you thought of the show. I promote this on uh, primarily LinkedIn. You'll see it up on Facebook as well. Uh, you can follow us there for updates on upcoming shows. We're doing some recaps and highlights of these programs. Maybe a few fantasy football tips as well. We'll, we'll throw those in there. I'm wondering, Robin, whether I should whether you are planning on starting Joe Burrow this week. I think they're at Baltimore. That's kind of a tough matchup, but you got to roll the dice with Burrow in that. Yep. You know, QB one He's spot. my go-to guy. I got to do it right. As long as the O-line can keep him upright, <laughs> we're going to be okay. Yes. They'll be, he'll be, he'll be good. All right. We'll see you back here again in a few weeks, folks. Take care now. Thanks so much for tuning in to Off the Record. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. We'll catch you in the next episode.